Today we're backstage at um, the Blue Note in New York, and I'm sitting here with Paul Nelson, musician, producer, manager, yeah. and many blues other rock artist playing a jazz venue, <laughs> which is pretty cool. And why are we here tonight? Uh, Joe Lewis Walker. I I'm producing his new record. He actually has me guest appearing on his new record. He signed with I got him signed with Mascot Records. We've been friends for years. We met through Johnny. He he did some opening shows for us, and I always thought that uh, he would be an interesting artist to work with. And Johnny actually said that'd be a good idea. He actually pushed me into working with other people. You know, he was very supportive. And uh, Joe and I have been together for a while, and now we're doing the because of the tragedy of BB King. We're doing these BB King tributes. So again, uh, other artists come in, Papa Chubby, Ronnie Earl, and it changes up. And this is something that's starting. And who better than Joe Lewis Walker, who was very close with the BB, as was Johnny. So he invited me along for the ride. What did BB mean to you? Uh, to meet him, it's true what they say. He was the kindest, gentlest, most gracious person who was more concerned in what you were doing than what he was. And at first, I thought it was an act. And then in being with him in a, in a, in a lot of different situations, in the dressing rooms, in, in uh, uh, the tour bus, uh, you know, crossroads with, with Clapton, and hearing how Johnny spoke of him, it, it never stopped. A half an hour into the conversation, an hour into the conversation, he was just, it was unreal. It was unhumanly kind. It, like Johnny said in, in, in the, um, the Life of Riley, he was a blues saint. Forget the music. The guy himself was just unbelievable. How are you doing? Oh, I love what you're doing with uh, Johnny. I heard this, I did this. I, he, appreciate, he would compliment you on your playing which was amazing. I've seen a lot of, uh, especially since the tragedy, I've seen a lot of people um, talk about this. I think Susan Tedeschi did. People that really meet him and sit with him and know him and in the, in the industry and musicians, it's, it's the same thing. They talk about that first and then it's like, oh, and of course he influenced my playing and you know, the one note, his, his identifiable sound and tone and how all his riffs are in, in everybody's riffs and uh, how much he worked at it, and uh, I got a lot of it because Johnny and he were friends, and then uh, Johnny would tell me about how they originally met, you know, back in the club in Texas, and Johnny was like 16, and they, BB thought he was with the IRS because it was the only reason why uh, a group of white people would walk into a black club, and uh, BB handed him Lucille and let Johnny play, and he got a standing ovation. That's, that's documented. Yeah. But uh, he would always tell that story every time he came on the bus and whatnot. So um, there's a connection there, you know. But uh, amazing. The, the tie between Johnny and Bibi was the one that I knew most. Right. And Johnny just loved them. I mean, he had every single record. And as, a, as guitar players, we all, he started it. He started that style, so. Can we talk about... And you've interviewed a, a lot of people that, you know, Doing sure. your BB yeah. uh, documentary, yeah, it's they talk about the man, and you don't really get that much. You know, musicians talk about, oh, he's a great player, and yeah, I love his amps, I love his 
strings and his picks and the way he does bends in it. But the first thing that people that, him, 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 him. Yeah. And from a guy who went through a lot of stuff, he could have gone the other way. He could have been very negative and, very, and, and it would be understandable. Exactly. But he didn't. Yeah. And he went way the other way. Which actually is a really great way to go. Because it, it does wipe out. It doesn't, there's none of that negativity. So maybe that was the philosophy. Or maybe, you know. So, but yeah, it was real, real. When, when he treats people like that, you just think other people who have egos and whatever. Exactly. What so, the excuse for that is, I have no so idea. So that was his way of dealing with things. Going that route. And, and hardly any have in, in any situation, you know? So, yeah, amazing. Let me ask you about your beginnings. How did you first get into music? Uh, parents got me a guitar. I wanted to be a drummer, playing on the pots and pans. It was too loud. Too many, uh, the drum kit would take up too much space, so I got into the guitar. And I listened to uh, Johnny Hendrix, B.B. King. And then I got into rock, ZZ Top, Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, kind of stuff that Warren Haynes was into, mm -hmm. those kind of artists. But then I got the fusion bug through Jeff Beck. Mm -hmm. And I, I figured if I'm going to do this, I better have a working knowledge of everything that is music, because I wanted—I always wanted to be under the umbrella of music, no matter where. Because, you know, you never know what's going to happen, and you can't have this mindset, or at least I didn't, where one man, one band. Not that I didn't have a a, a loyalty to whoever I was playing with, but I knew I had to be. Uh, proficient in all aspects of music to stay within it. So, so at least it, it wasn't so infinite. So it could have been recording, could have been producing, could have been managing, could have been playing. So I said, I need to go to Berkeley. I need to go to a college. So I went to Berkeley College of Music. And that's where I met Steve Vai and I took lessons from him. And then after college I studied with uh, Steve Kahn, uh, Mike Stern. But Berkeley was mainly musical, like it wasn't about the business of music. There were courses. It was, yeah. Yeah, but it was music, yeah. Ear training, theory, sight reading, chords, you know, all the stuff that a musician needs to, to do. Yeah, the, the business end of it, they were, it was accredited, but uh, yeah, there were no courses, they've added some on, but the business end of it, you learned after you left, yeah. But uh, a lot of great players went there. It was a great, it was the kind of place when you're there you can't wait to get out. And then when you're not there, you realize that everybody's still practicing at that crazy pace. I mean, there was no TV. There was no, it was 24-7 playing, practicing, practicing. And then you'd learn one riff, and down the hallway of the dormitories, you'd hear everybody play that riff from room to room, because it would go right through the wall. So if you went, da 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 you'd hear, like with dominoes. It was pretty crazy. Am I correct to assume I've done some work with classical musicians, and I know their discipline and the hours and hours of practice? Same thing. Pretty well, same thing. Same thing, same thing, same thing. I mean, even Johnny with the blues, you know, he stayed focused on one kind of style. But I knew I had to play many, because that's that's how you work, that's how you play. So I I I learned. I always took private lessons, and I knew you had to 
wear a different. I learned how to wear a different hat for a different situation. And then if I was wasn't proficient in any musical style, I would actually form a group or uh, get a, a a group of musicians together, and we would learn that style. So if I was weak in funk or jazz or or punk or or pop or whatever, I would form a band around that and learn all the material I could to sound like that. But what would what would be the end game to that? I mean. More work. More work. The, so it's the phone rings. Session guy. And that's how I met Johnny. Okay. So tell me about your session work. I, I was a session guy for the XFL, the, 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 the football league, and Johnny walked in and heard me playing. And I just happened to be doing a blues piece. And he was like, wow, that's pretty good. I'm in here recording. I'm a blues man. Um, would you like to write a song and submit it for me? I said, great, cool. So I had all the guys in the studio. I had I, His equipment was there. So I went out and I got a singer that sounded like Johnny, like, like a Johnny Winter impersonator or, or a cover guy or whatever. So I actually submitted a song to him that sounded like a Johnny Winter song. So when he heard it, he says, wow, this is pretty good. It, it sounds like me. And he's hearing a singer singing the part. I wrote the lyrics. And, and I go, well, it could be. He goes, you got any more? I need two more. So now we're getting into how the session work led to, yeah, which is my philosophy. It's not being in the right place at the right time. It's being in the right place all the time. You can't. It's the odds aren't. Yeah. So he said two more. So I said, oh, these are great, um, but there's other guitar playing on there. There's some other parts. You want to play on the record? Sure. He goes, well, since you're doing that, you might as well play on the whole record. Great. Can I ask, at yeah. that point, I mean, where are you in your musical career and how, what does that opportunity mean to you? It was great. He was one of my idols. I didn't know how far it was going to go. And it was funny that Johnny and I had a, had a strange relationship. Every time he would offer me something, I would always go, I have to think about it. And that would piss him off. What do you mean you have to think about it? Well, nobody said it. And, and for some reason, every time I said that, he would say, oh, Nobody says that. I want you to do this and that. It was a weird kind of, yeah. So, three songs, the whole album. And he says, well, since you're on the album, why don't you come on tour? I go, where are we going? We're going to England. You got a passport? We're leaving tomorrow. So it just, it developed and developed. And then I noticed that he had trouble with his health. And I'm like, his voice wasn't strong. And so then I realized it was the management. The management wanted to manage me. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, you have Johnny Winter. I'm, I'm flattered, but what's going on here? And yeah, eventually Johnny asked me, will you help my career? So at that point, how much did you know about managing? And what was your experience in being I had worked with bands. I had been into promotion for my own stuff for other people, A&R, radio promotion. Uh, worked with all the, uh, the record companies. And the thing was, oh, Every time, record companies would always want to hire me to work with them on, on, a, on that kind of level. And I, I was like, I just want to play. So I turned down a lot. And in doing that, they wanted me more and more and more and more and, you know, in sales positions and all this kind of thing. So it made me more well-rounded, which was great. But at the same time, I've always wanted to play. And I've always practiced. And I went to music college, so I couldn't throw all that out. But you start thinking, uh-oh, what if? And that's been my creed. What if? What if you lose a finger? What if something happens? What if you... What if? But even without the what if, do you not find that a lot of musicians are just focused on playing and a lot of them have no sense of the business? Yeah, and, and you know, if you think about all the ones that are just still sitting there, 
and it's hard for them because I've seen both sides. Musicians will sit there and practice and they never think they're good enough. And their friends and their family and uh, they do a few shows and it's like, you're, you're great, you're great. And they don't really believe it. And then the next step is they say, you need to promote yourself. You need to say you're good. And then when they get in that mindset that they start doing that, uh, it still feels kind of weird because there's no one saying it for you. There, I used to hate managers and I didn't see that they served any purpose, but then I realized they're the spokesperson for the person. They're the Cyrano, you know, that, that's getting it arranged. And they're the, the first line of defense that actually is the proper chain of command. Things have to work a certain way. Even if the guy's a flake and he doesn't work out great, if you have that voice representing you, they shot him to stardom because they became these things, you know. That, and uh, it's, it's a necessary thing. So uh, there are a lot of artists that practice and practice and they just sit there. And until they have the management that represents them and can afford them. You know, there's a lot of artists that, that really need management to make that next step. But when they bring in the management and he charges any kind of fee, it squashes them. They can't afford it and they really need it. So a lot of really good artists are, are dropping by the wayside because they just can't, you know, everybody's looking at SoundScan numbers and Facebook numbers and, you know, uh, yeah, SoundScan meaning how many they, they sold, like a Nielsen rating. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really hurting, it's frustrating. And there's a lot of good guys and you can't manage them all. But I'm getting a lot of calls. And I, I, I really like helping people. That's how I started off with Johnny. That was helping a friend. You know, and yes, I had done it in, in different capacities with different artists. I had produced plenty of stuff, recorded. I was on albums, but I'll tell you more about when Johnny got together. But, but with Johnny, you didn't really have to convince people that he was great. Like, you didn't have to. Well, say. here you had an artist that was so down in the dumps He was running out of excuses. The, the legendary status was not supporting the guy that wasn't showing up. The, 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 the standard phrase was, you don't know that you have Johnny playing your club until he finishes. Hmm. You, yeah, there was no, uh, no one uh, was confident enough that he was gonna make the show or whatever. And the management was such in, in such bad shape that they were using his health as an excuse to cancel shows. So. It was even in his bio that he had, like, Parkinson's or something. All this weird stuff was written in there to act as an excuse because the management was trying to cancel stuff or not do stuff because of their own, his own problems. It was one guy uh, who was actually famous in the industry of being this nut job. But... Uh, what was it like to be associated to that? Because you're now, if you're playing with Johnny... I was with that guy. I mean, I was, where I was, you know, yeah. So you're with Johnny's band. So obviously, yeah. you know... But whatever. that guy was managing us. Right. So I saw it. But nobody stepped forward. You know, everybody... It was uh, the emperor's new clothes. And I'm the only one that sat there and said, uh, hello, you're uh, naked. You don't have anything... Yeah. Really, nobody's ever said that. I'm like, Really? And that's how it, and yeah. So was Johnny open to that? When you confronted him okay. or when things changed? This is perfect. This leads to the first time that I was made aware that he and I had a connection. We're in the studio, we're recording I'm a Blues Man, and I'm sitting face to face with Johnny Winter in the booth, 
There's another guy producing, Dick Sherman, great producer. And uh, <laughs> so Johnny is playing the song that I wrote, The Pride. And I'm like, should I be nervous? And I'm like thinking, I've worked my whole life to play. Now this is great. We're going to do this. And we come to the ending of the song, and he doesn't play it the way I wrote it. Now what do I say to my idol? You got it wrong? Or what do I say to just a regular guy? Do I look at him in that way? It, and then I realize, no, I worked really hard for this. I'm going to tell him. I, uh, that's not the way I, I wrote it. But then I was running the risk that he could say, and I saw that happen from the short time I knew him, that if something was not going the right way, it was out. The song would be done. And this was actually a duet I was going to do, wrote for B.B. King. I'm a blues man, yeah. But he had the, all these uh, family issues and he had the, you know, all the kids and all that. He couldn't make the, the thing, so it turned into one. So we're talking it through. He's playing the ending. Didn't get it. Did it again. How was that? And I look at him. I said, you know what? No cigar. No cigar? No. Let's, he goes, well, let's, I go, let's try it together. And everybody's looking. I'm like, okay. You know, because you write a riff, no matter how good you are. If you wrote the riff, you know it better than the other guy. And then he hears it, and then you work it out. So then we got it, and the song was saved. Now, this was early on. I had just met Johnny. And, you know, he was all hunched over and, like, you've seen pictures. You've seen it's, yeah. So he does his parts, and I do mine. And I say, okay, I want to do my parts again. The, in, the, in the booth, the engineer, everyone gasps. <gasps> What do you mean? No one wants to showboat Johnny and play extra stuff, and no one has to oh, outdo Johnny, and why would you want to play your parts again? And, and I, whoa, 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 whoa. I want to play less. And Johnny looks at me and goes, what do you mean you want to play less? I go, well, now that I hear what you're playing, I want to compliment you, and I want to compliment the song. I go, it's about the song. It's about the major label that's going to get this product, I want it to sound good. And if you're going to play high, I'm going to play low. If you're going to, it's simple. And he said, nobody's ever said that to me. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, every time I play with people, they want to either outdo me and, you know, it, it's always a battle. You know, he wasn't a big fan of uh, Johnny Winter and because it was just too much going on. He couldn't get a word in edgewise. He goes, I like you. That's really good. So I, didn't, I was like, okay. So I'm walking out of the studio, and the owner of the studio says, Paul, come here for a minute. And I had known him for years. He says, uh, I don't know what it is, but I saw you and Johnny. There's something about you two, and I have this weird feeling. I'm not into supernatural stuff. He goes, but there's something about you two together. And this was like the first two weeks I had just met him. He goes, I think you guys are going to help each other. I think you're going to do something for Johnny, and I think he trusts you enough to fix him. I, I'm not, I go, really? You see it? What, what? The way you guys talk together and the way there's something there. You're going to help Johnny come back. Not, he didn't say come back, but you're going to help him in some way. And I was like, yeah, okay. But in hindsight, now I see that people saw what we were doing, even though I was in it. 
making sure that he made it from day to day. That was my goal, day to day. But at the same time, I had the vision of what he had to do. Yeah. There was this point where... So people saw it early on that we had this thing, that I could say things to him, like no cigar. Who the hell says no cigar? To, that, that's like saying, you know, uh, straighten out your, your hat, Mr. Pope. You can't... But he, he was open to it, though. It was a big risk. But then I realized they're the, they're the same. Right. And you can't help them if you treat them like a drooling person that's going to meet him for five, get their five minutes of fame and meet him. If I'm going to help him, he can't get to me. And that's the most important thing. It's, it's tough love. And later on, as, as you'll see in the movie that comes out and all this stuff, we, we went through our little journey together with the behavioralists and all this kind of thing and, you know, got them off the drugs and all that. And they were, yeah. But how tough was it? I mean, there were times when you would carry him up on stage and he would be this very frail musician. Not towards the end. No, not yeah, yeah, definitely not towards the, the end. In the beginning. In the beginning. But yeah. there were times when people would go see him and go, wow, he's not. They were in shock. Him. Yeah. In shock. So I, what was that I, like he was like you? cream corn. He, was, he would fall asleep in his mashed potatoes. He would, uh, yeah, he, he, he would light a cigarette and his hat would go on fire. And he'd just sit there to the point where one guy, one guy actually did a pencil sketch of a, a time when I wasn't around where his hat went on fire and he had enough time to draw the flame. That's how long, you know, think of that. You know, not put it out. It's like someone filming somebody. Well, do you help with the disaster or do you let the disaster go? It was one of those moments, but he saw that it. But what was that like for you? He was my idol and he was becoming my friend. So it started to hurt. And my payback was seeing him smile. Uh, he was a buddy. You know, it got to the point after, after touring, we would go out bowling. I took Johnny bowling. I got him laser surgery. He was no longer legally blind. There was some serious stuff going on there. And, uh, you know, we lived close to each other. So it was, you know, I, I got involved in his home life too, you know, to help health-wise. You know, and his, his, his financial state was a mess. You know, after firing the manager, you know, it was, you know, there was a lot, you know, home life meaning they actually, he and his wife Susan ended up having a really great time when he became healthier because their whole time together was, he was there. You know, there was a time where he, she was with him and she said he didn't even know I was in the room. He was bad. He was on a ton of methadone. He was on antidepressants. He was on uh, drinking alcohol. It was a lot of stuff. A lot. He, he made Ozzy Osbourne look like he had training wheels. And he was on the same stuff, by the way. What is it about you that that did that to put up with all that. Ah, well, I found out from the, the we we'd go to behavioralist every Wednesday or or Skype. You know, after you get off the drugs, you you have this coming down period. Uh, uh, described as a caregiver. It could be a mother, it could be a brother, but and and people like that take on that role, and it's just this blind faith helping helping somebody out. I'm not trying to brag that I'm different from anybody else, but I just got I was in that position where I knew if I didn't help, he would die. I never wanted to take credit or responsibility for that. Like, oh, you're the only one that can do this. Who the hell do you think you are? But it got in that situation and. I started, I saw it, but at the time, it's like, oh, you know, nobody talks to Johnny the way you do. 
And I realized I, I'm, I ended up being the kind of guy that took one step forward and the whole line took one step back. And I'm like, okay, let's go. But I did tell Johnny right off the bat when he said, you know, can you help me with this manager? I said, look, there's going to be times where you, you got to shut the hell up. We, we got a plan. We got to do certain stuff. The drugs got to go. We got to work on the record deals. We got to work on your image. We got to work on your health. We got to work on your finances. We got to work on your home. We got to work on your insurance, your, your phones. Did he understand your merchandise. That? Oh, yeah. Okay. Because my main goal was to clean him up first so I could talk to somebody on the same level. I didn't want him to be a, a non-responsive person. Like he was, the, man, the previous management was medicating him. I was taking it away because I wanted him to be on a clean slate. And then he had the physical therapy and all that, and he was really doing well. But the thing that got him in the end was the emphysema. It's the one thing that we couldn't reverse. He stopped smoking, which was really unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but when you get a cold when you have emphysema, you get a cold. So he got a cold over in Zurich, and it just, in a day, and it was given antibiotics, and he just went to sleep. But when I was with him, I couldn't let him know, you're the guy on my wall, the poster. Because if I did, he would get to me, not intentionally, but I'm Johnny Winter. I want this. Why should I stop taking this? Why should I? I couldn't let that get to me. So you have all these drooling people around that you can get enough kind of attention in that respect, but to really make stuff happen for him. And sometimes it was viewed as me being a little tough on him. How come you're being so tough to my idol? Uh, if I'm not, your idol is going to drop dead. Somebody's got to say no. And I'm the only one that said, well, again, that's self-serving, but I, I said no a lot. Are you, you can't do this. Why not? I'm so... Here's an example. Let's try this. You saw that it worked this way. Let's try it. And that's, you know, and I, I, you know, you're dealing with a mature person and an immature person because of the profession. You've seen a million of them. Well, and I'm one of those too. So I was able to relate from a musical standpoint. When I first met you, when I first met Johnny, you were kind enough to get me an interview with him. Yeah. And he could barely say many words. Oh, go ahead. No, he, yeah. He was, but, but it was such an amazing thrill to meet him. And then I walked away from that interview and the first thing I knew was that how much you guys cared. Like the whole band really cared about Johnny. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't about just we care about Johnny because we're on tour with him. But it, there was just this genuine love. And then I saw you again a year later and we chatted and Johnny spoke a little more. Yes. And then a couple of years later, I chatted with him. You called me backstage and said, say hi to Johnny. There was a reason for that. Your role and the people in your profession's role was so important because it was the, the gauge, the VU meter, as to how much he was improving. The fact that you did it and then came back and did it again gave me the input. Boy, he was more talkative this time. Wow, what a difference. Okay, it's working. It's this and that. You, you were telling me and giving me the feedback that whatever was going on was, was the right thing. And like you said, that was another thing too. You know, there was so much love and so much this. Sometimes there was too much love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, they all love me. I can do whatever I want. So there was a lot of stuff going on there too. You had to be very careful. Again, I said it was tough love. You know, it's like, not Mr. Winner, do you want a water? It's... Johnny, it's in the fridge, go get it. 
I had to bone up and you know I was no professional but I got the advice of a lot of people and had to make spot decisions sometimes you know especially on getting off drugs but I always related to people in the know so if I was told you got to say no and a fan walks on and they witness me while they have their two seconds with Johnny for the rest of their life and I'm like Johnny go get a water and a fan says to me how could you treat Mr. Johnny Winter like that? You know, that's, and it's like, he could get so many people saying, Don't, you know, that kind of thing. So, it, because it, I was working on the man and at the same time working on his career. And <laughs> he goes on David Letterman and messes up. We, we got a problem. All that work is damaged. He goes on crossroads and, and he doesn't perform correctly or something. That's a problem. After all the wonderful work that you did, and then also Johnny passes, how do you, as a friend, business associate, band member? That was rough. I can imagine. I mean, you know, we're, we were there. I'm watching the whole thing, you know. And, um, I got a new respect for, well, I never had this respect, but I got an unbelievable, the way the EMS works was, is just amazing. What, what they do is unbelievable. But, uh, you know, we were always very open about, again, with him. What if? What if I go? What if I do this? You know, what if something happens? He thought he was going to live to 100, and he always said 100. And I said, well, can you make it 99 and give me a year off? And he goes, oh, you're messed up. I can't believe it. Yes, we had that running joke. Yeah. I go, really? 100? And he goes, you know, you're going to manage me even if I'm here and not here. I'm like, well, how's that going to happen? And he goes, oh, well, yeah. So I didn't think it was coming that soon. Obviously, it will come. And, but, uh, you know, he was my best friend. He was a father. He was a grandfather. He was a brother. He was a, you know, all that. And we did so much together. It was just, and plus he lived so close. And the music, every time, you know, I hear something on an interview or a song, you know, you see these pictures and it's, it's there. Uh, you know, I'm also worried about the, the band. It just stopped. In that respect, you know, I'll always keep busy and I'll always do stuff. But you know, you you were watching over everyone, so I, you know, keep tabs on that. But you immerse yourself in. I I'm still working with the estate, so I'm going to carry on his legacy, making sure there's no bootleg stuff, and stuff that comes out. And as uh, when I sat there, when the album came out, I didn't know what to do. And you know, the, uh, his wife and the estate were great friends. They're like, you're going to continue on working this for Johnny. So you know, social media is very important. So now I'm, I'm helping him or helping that aspect of his life continue on by making, you know, like policing what's going on, you know, and, and it's important because there's still a ton of material out there. There's, there's still uh, the movie's still coming out. There's, there will always be Johnny Winter stuff. So somebody's got to do it. So the, they were gracious, and Johnny it was Johnny's wish that I continue to work in that capacity. So that that's always going to be there. And he was right. He was right. That son of a gun. Yeah. But tell me about what else you're working on. Oh well, my solo project, which he always approved. I, he, he was he was going to play on it. I signed signed with the Sony in Japan. We did a lot of touring over there. I befriended them, and they were a big fan of my playing as well. And Johnny always talked me up. Johnny was cool. He was he was always say sell your stuff at my shows, you know. And he he took me under his wing and he had me. Um, he would say, listen to this artist, and I'd be oh 
all right, I'll get every record like you have. Go, no, 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 no. Listen to this song, this album, this riff. So he actually narrowed the chase for me. You know, go, don't hang a left, hang a, go straight, right down there. And that was really cool. He did that with Tommy Shannon too, because he was a big uh, R&B Motown kind of guy. He's like, oh, listen to this blues artist. So he spread the blues word. And he, you know, in the blues community, as you know, there's a lot of that uh, passing the torch, uh, giving them the golden spoon or the goblet or whatever it is. So he was kind of gearing me up. And it actually helped when he bestowed upon me the producing uh, goblet because it allowed him to just relax and play. Here was a guy that produced Muddy and got Grammys for that, but he never got a Grammy for his own stuff, which I was honored to be a part of. But uh, it really helped him be him on those albums. But uh, yeah, you know, you miss him. He was a great guy. He was the guy, and as he got better, the funny side came out. He was the guy with the lampshade on the head and quick wit and jokes and a huge blues historian, amazing. Mm -hmm. And the stories and the, you know? And uh, we got closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. The trust there was, it had to be. I mean, you're talking about some serious life changes, getting off certain medications and drinking and, uh, you know, why should I stop smoking? I've been smoking all these years. And who am I, a little snot-nosed kid telling him, you need to stop smoking. I'm sitting there with scissors cutting cigarettes in half and thinking everything I could do to, you know, and, and it, it worked. Can you maybe share a moment that would describe who Johnny really was that maybe most people wouldn't? Well, like I said, it, the, 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 the funny side, I mean, just watching him bowl, not, not physically funny, but it, I mean, yeah, you know, he snorkeled. He had a, a diving license. I mean, in the day, he, he, he and his wife would ride up and down. They told me when they had an apartment in Park Avenue, they would go out at night at like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, and he would ride the, the scooter, and she would sit on the back and give directions because there was no traffic. So he would actually go up and down the streets of Manhattan when everybody was asleep, nobody knows, and zipping down. Is that Johnny Winter on it? Yeah, some really, yeah, great sense of humor. Real funny. Real funny. And, uh, yeah, I, whenever I saw him smile, that I was like, as corny as that sounds, I'm like, wow, that was the payback. Because, you know, there were no gold stars. You just had to get him through the day, you know, and, and try to build him back to what he was. And musical moments? Tell me. Oh, musical moments. Playing in Japan. Personal moments when, we, when he and I both got our first, when I got my first tattoo, and he got his first tattoo in Japan, and that was great. And he's looking over, and it, it, it was a great moment. What does the uh, tattoo say? Is that it? Right it's just a G clef. Yeah, I got one every time we went to Japan. But um, I said, if you're going to get a tattoo, it's like getting one with Hendrix. You can't say no. So I, I'm like, I got to do this. So you know, everybody's looking for that story around the tattoo. Well, it was my dog that passed away, and it's related to my uncle. And it's a, I had no story. So I'm like, well, here it is, Johnny. Yeah, so, so I did it. Your music. Tell me a little bit about the music you're playing. Well, obviously, my, uh, I have roots in blues, and because of Johnny, I've heard his music so much, and musicians are like sponges, so there's a large part of his playing in me. But at the same time, I, I have more variety of stuff that I play. And even Johnny said, you know, I know you do a lot of stuff, but I'm glad you play blues with me. I know you can play all that other stuff, and you know, 
I've heard you at Soundcheck and you do all that, but you know, I like what you do with me. I go, don't worry, I will never do anything different with you. So um, we discussed earlier, you know, the direction of music and everybody's worrying, you know, what's, what's the next thing? You know, you have all these legendary blues guys. You got these jam bands popping up. You got these fusion guys. I mean, uh, Warren Haynes and Government Mules running around with John Schofield, mm -hmm. and it's working. So the audiences are being exposed to fusion, jam band, blues. There's a huge scene coming out of New Orleans, which is an eclectic mess of everything combined. So I think what's happening, and, and classic rock, what happens after ACDC? What happens after Aerosmith? What happens after... Zeppelin reunites for the 80th time. What, what happens? Where'd the front men go? They all have guitars now. Will that, where's the classic rock element? Everybody appreciates classic rock. Even uh, Warren Haynes did an ACDC tribute. Uh, all my brothers are gone. Where did all those fans go? They went towards Warren and Derek and that whole thing. So the whole Southern rock thing. So everybody's like, what's the next big thing? I think, in the many people that I speak with, it's a mixture of everything which is going to be great because it will allow a musician, a blues musician, to play more different styles on one album and the audiences won't banish them from the blues world or banish them. So I think it, we're at a really good time, but not too many people are seeing how good this really is. It's more open to everything. And, and people like I keep on mentioning Warren and Derek and all those guys are exposing their jam band fans to all of a sudden Warren will play Freddie King and then he'll play Billy Cobb's Spectrum, and then he'll play. He's grooming the audience to get ready to do more stuff. So my stuff is based more in the rock area. I got a great front man. I wanted to do that. It would have been too easy for me to just go to the blues. I'll never be Johnny Winter, and I don't want everybody to go, oh, well, you know, he doesn't sound like Johnny. So I want to do what I want to do. And I've been writing songs, which I've done. I wrote songs for Johnny. I've written songs for other people. And uh, I'm producing. And like I said, I have this deal, and I've been working on a lot of stuff. And it's, it's, it's kind of like this hidden secret thing, but it's, it's serious. So are you going out on tour soon? or Working on that, yeah. As soon as that comes out, yeah. So Johnny Winter movie's coming out, so there's going to be stuff with that. And, you know, we're doing the Johnny Winter legacy band, Johnny's band, we, the last guys that played with him we, we tribute Johnny we did shows with Edgar I just got back from uh, Jamaica where I played with Warren Haynes and Sonny Landreth everybody sits in with us so we play Johnny songs I mean who, who's going to keep that music going so that that's fun and a responsibility at the same time uh, so was it well received I mean with oh, those yeah. two I can imagine yeah yeah BB, uh, Buddy Guy at, at Legends came out we presented a guitar that went on his wall there uh, Edgar came to the show Earl Slick We've been sh doing shows like that all over the place. Wow. You know, there won't be millions of them, but it's just something that, you know, and, and the other past members join in. We did it in Canada with David Gogo and Pat Rush. So, it's, it's, yeah, so that's that's a, a little side thing, but it just keeps it, you know, going in that respect. Plus the the lineage, the, the, the catalog that he has is just insane. And you will continue to manage? Yeah. Can you talk about that? I work with, yeah, I work with other artists. A lot of artists contact me to help them out. And uh, like I'm working with Joe, but I'm also playing with Joe. So it, 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 like I said, it's under the umbrella of music. But my big thing is my solo stuff. You know, I, I had one solo out, album out already, and that was instrumental fusion stuff. But I really want to do a singer and write songs. And 
I think the, the category or the term that, that all these musical styles, it's like a mutt. It's almost like mutt rock. It's like a mixture of everything, you know, that gives you the freedom to play whatever you want to play. So um, I, I have a lot of companies that back me up, a lot of great products. So there's a lot of stuff going on. The worst thing I could have done was made a hasty decision that would have been long term. And I realize that you can't manage yourself. So I'm saying what other artists need to know. You have to have somebody represent you. It's just part of the process. Right. So I'm doing that now. And I do a lot of stuff like this, a lot of stuff like this. And I will always, you know, there's stories. I have to, I have to talk about Johnny. There was so much time spent and people want to know. But they also want to hear me play. All those Johnny fans, they're like, Paul, what do you got? Let's see what you got. And I'm going to give it to them. Oh, you know what? In grade nine, my third concert that I ever went to see was Johnny Wynn at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And Slade opened up, and Johnny came Slade, out. Slade, oh my God. And it was a uh, Still Alive and Well tour. Yeah. And it was, you know, I, I still picture Johnny glowing in the dark. There. Oh, he was, uh, he was just amazing. And I've seen him many, many times. And but he, that comeback he had put him on that Mount Rushmore of artists. He's right there with Hendrix, you know. It, it wavered because when everybody was on that retro train in the 90s, he was out of the picture. Mm -hmm. You know, Clapton wrote it, B.B. King wrote it. They all had that resurgence, you know, B.B. Uh, King with U2 and all that kind of thing. Johnny didn't have that. Management didn't know what to do with him. They wanted to keep him forever young. I saw the benefit of making the public aware that people get old. And what's wrong with Johnny being an elderly statesman? So when the time was right, he was healthy. You have to be healthy to do that. And when the time was right, that's when he showed up. I got him on Letterman, and that's when he showed up with Crossroads. And then, then it was like, okay, we work for this is how this is how he should have been at his worst. He should have never been let to get to that. But the the managers didn't know how to say no. All they did was say yes, and that doesn't work. Well, you're definitely one of the good guys, and yeah. it's been always a pleasure for me. So to work weird with being you, one so. of the good guys, you know, or being told it's like. But you are. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, it's, it I was it something different. It yeah. was something different. I haven't seen this happen. You know, you look around, it's like. Wow, it's like some kind of team that, that, that Thelma and Louise or something. There's not too many yeah. duos in that respect or, or stories like that where the guy's in the band but he's a buddy and a, yeah. yeah, it was it was a it was a cool friendship. Yeah, I got a lot out of it. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Thank you very much. This was great.